Welcome to Diary of a Crowdfunded Film, proudly in collaboration with Brick Studios. I'm Jose Pusella. Join me as I take you on this audio journey with Heath Davis on the making of his new crowdfunded film, Christmas. Welcome back to this 13th episode of Diary of a Crowdfunded Film, bringing you the audio equivalent of the special features on a DVD in this series dedicated to the fourth film by Heath Davies titled Christmas. As always, I'm your host, Jose Pusella, who likes his smooth peanut butter by the jar so much that I should go by PB and JP. And joining me is a talented creative whose focus is unwavering, can F stop on a dime, and is fluent in Dutch angles. Thank you for joining me, Chris Blant. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. And uh, look, before we illuminate our listeners, if you don't mind, I'm going to get our uh, housekeeping out of the way. So if you enjoyed our last episode as much as Slem's character Waza in two hands enjoys shoddies, then lock and load your search engines with our Facebook page or Twitter at Diary of a Crowd F1. Please subscribe and reshare the episodes so others can help continue to spread the word and momentum for this podcast and Heat's film Christmas. So Chris... You have an in-depth understanding and experience in all departments of camera. Um, In addition to being the DOP um, on all of Heath's previous films, Broke, Book Week, for which you won silver, and Locus, for which you won gold at the New South Wales Cinematography Awards in 2019. So congratulations on that. Thank you. Before we dive into today's discussion, I wanted to know if you could indulge me and if we can get to know a little bit about the former years of Chris before he was a cinematographer? Uh, how far back would you like to go? Or um, I guess what what is it in particular you would, would like to know? Yeah. Yeah, well, I understand that um, you lived abroad. I, I did. Um, I lived, um, I left I left Australia in the late 90s and moved to London. Right. And, and I lived in the UK on and off for nearly 10 years. Oh, wow. When I left high school, um, I did my HSC. Uh, sort of came out in a market that was, I guess, I guess it was a recession. So it was a very competitive market, and I wasn't a hundred percent sure in the direction of study that I wanted to go. So I didn't want to commit to something uh, that may not have been the correct choice. So, and then just through circumstances, I fell into a carpentry apprenticeship, and from some good advice from my mother, uh, I followed it through. Um, and pretty much within a few months of completing it, I bought a ticket and um, took off overseas. So I was kind of, I was very ready to explore. I was very ready to um, go and find out what other countries were all about and what other people were all about. So it felt like the apprenticeship dragged on a little bit and in fairness it probably did but um, look in hindsight it was a very sensible thing to do and then I guess it was time to do something that wasn't overly sensible so um, (laughs) hence I went traveling for three months and didn't come back for three and a half years. I love it. That, look, there was definitely a three involved you just didn't know how long it was going to stretch out for. Exactly yes. Was there some time while you were living abroad that uh, or an experience that kind of changed the course of the direction and made you go, yes, I'm going to head towards studying film. If I'm going to be honest, I actually did. Um, I did a short course at Western Sydney Uni, uh, probably a year before I went overseas. It was an interesting course. I mean, I, I really enjoyed it. I got a lot out of it. I don't think I knew which direction 
I, I sort of wanted to follow at that point. The guy who took the course, he was both encouraging and discouraging of a career in the film industry. Right. So the one take home that I sort of got from that course and then sort of meeting other people from the course was that uh, the film industry is something that once you commit to it, you kind of have to follow through because it takes time um, and a lot of commitment and dedication. And at that stage, the short course did do something for me. It made me realise that I needed to go and travel first before I sort of started so looking into the film industry again. Before you dug your heels. Dug my heels, exactly, and committed to kind of life in the film industry, which um, which has sort of brought me to where I am today. So can I ask, where was it that you actually ended up studying um, film when you came back? Well, I did do a short course in London at a film school called Panico, right. um, which is, I think it's been absorbed by a larger film school now, but it was an industry-based film school taught by people working in the industry. Um, and that was a real, that sort of got me excited. And, you know, from that, I went out and bought a 16 millimeter Bolex. From that, I went out and bought an eight millimeter camera. And I, I sort of started to feel the draw of moving pictures from a camera perspective. Right. Before that, I just kind of gravitated to story and um, the ability to, I guess, take people on a journey, but I didn't know to what part I sort of fit. So what, because obviously it sounds like visually that component was always compelling for you. Um, can you pinpoint what was it about, I guess, composition, camera and lighting that ultimately cemented this love that you have um, as a DOP? I think um, for me, I mean, the love for images started with traveling, with exploring, um, going to new places, not wanting to forget them, wanting to capture them. Um, so I always had a, a camera with me at all times. Like I think, I, th I really think it started with stills and then it started with films like Stand By Me, uh, Shawshank Redemption. These were movies that, you know, were just beautifully framed, beautifully blocked, well-written, well-acted. It was sort of like an ensemble of work across the board was done to a high level. So it's movies like that that really got me excited. At that time, were you already paying attention um, or aware of the cinematographers in those films? Or I, I, I think I don't think I was. I think I was probably more paying attention to the story at that time. Um, I think I was paying attention to good acting. Mm. I think um, as time went on. Uh, and the more, uh, I think, cinematographers started to become prevalent in our society for the work they do, I think I started, it started to resonate with me. There was a, an amazing bookshop in London, um, in Tottenham, I think it was off Tottenham Court Road, called Foils, and it was, it was four stories high, and it was the only place I knew that you could go to. They had a film section, and they had books on cinematography and so I would just I would go in there I wouldn't even buy them I'd just sit in there and just read these books and just sort of challenge myself and sort of I guess start to ask questions of movies that I watched from that time right. on and I think the, the initial short courses short courses in London started to excite me 
I'd bought a, a 16 mil camera, so I was loading film stock. I was shooting it. I was getting it developed. You start thinking when you're paying for the film stock, you start thinking about what you're shooting. So it all starts to line up, I think, at that point. Um, and then, then your quest is really, okay, I need to find some other people who sort of share the same passion that I do. And, and what can we do? How do we, how do we make things going forward? So speaking about, uh, or reflecting on trying to find people that you end up sharing a passion with and collaborate with, how did your relationship with Heath first come about? We met. We were introduced to each other by a a producer who was who had a little production company in in Sydney. I was I had been doing some camera assisting and lighting for him, and he knew that I wanted to that I was shooting stuff, and I wanted to step up mm-hmm. shooting. And um, he introduced me to Heath. Heath had had a couple of short films that had done really well. And he wanted to get some music clips under Heath's belt. Um, we did a music clip together, which was uh, was pretty interesting. It was about um, it was about these two guys who drive around in a van, picking up tall people and throwing them in the back. So, so that was sort of the first time we really we got to work together, and uh, I could see straight away that Heath had a he had a point of view and he had a um he had a good cinematic vision which right. is something that i resonate towards uh from that we did a short film and then uh from that we started talking about um other things that we could do together so it was it was definitely there's a lot of things we have in common um we both had grown up in western sydney so we sort of knew what it was like to uh, be be creative, but also feel isolated. So I think from we that sort of was something that we could connect on, and mm-hmm. and I think we also knew that we had to work hard at what we were doing to be able to be taken seriously. So yeah, I mean, it, it was it was a chance meeting, but I think we've also from that point worked really hard at working really hard together. If that makes sense. It does. I mean, you wouldn't be one shy, you know, one film shy for Kinella with Heath if that wasn't the case. And I'm guessing during that time, there has to be a shorthand that's been developed between uh, both of you. Um, So how would you describe the collaborative style during pre-production and I guess on set between yourself and Heath? Well, I I think um, in the beginning, I like to... Obviously, I'll read I'll read the script a few times, and then we'll, Heath and I will start talking. And Heath has this very he has this. Uh, first of all, he'll start he'll share some ideas or some other references, whether it be an image or some music or another film that will get you in the mood, if that makes sense, so that you start you start seeing the same images that he's seen. Yes. And I think like a precursor that, to a, a mood board, so to speak. Uh, it's not sort of purposefully laid out as a mood board, but essentially it is a it's an ongoing mood board, and mm-hmm. uh, they they can be inspirational. They can be um, 
you know, directing you towards the editorial side. They, it, it's, it's basically his way of allowing me to see what he's seeing because he, he has this ability that when he writes, he sees it straight away. He sees the movie as he's writing. And sort of from the early days, especially with Broke, I really enjoyed the script. Um, we sort of, from sort of day dot, trust in the script. If there's any questions that we don't have, just go back to the script. So the script became the Bible, and I think um, that, was, that could be the same said for Book Week and Locust as well. You know, if in doubt, go back to the script. Of the three, you know, I would hazard the guess that Locust would have been the hardest to light um, and shoot. And of course, you can correct me otherwise. Um, but what were the factors that would have played towards that? And how did you overcome? Because it was, I think it was July that you guys were shooting in Broken Hill. Look, to be honest with you, uh, Broken Hill in the wintertime is just a fabulous time to shoot. I mean, wow. sure, or you your days aren't as long as uh, your summertime days, but the sun is of a low height, so you have great consistency of daylight. Um, right. Yeah, and in the two, I think we were out there two and a half weeks for the principal photography, and I think we had two days of cloud and a little bit of rain. So Blessed. Yeah, it was a phenomenal place to shoot. So I actually... I approached it the same way that I would any any film. Um, Heath and I did a lot of pre-production. We usually sit down and um, pre-visualize um, the movie as we go in varying degrees. Um, there's some software that I use. And once we've seen a location, I'll draw the location up and then we'll start talking about blocking. Will you do like a kind of previs almost? Is that what you're saying? We do a previs. Purely and simply because it's a great exercise in getting in each other's heads, see the blocking playing out. Now, obviously, once when you bring the actors into the equation, they have one, you know, they're professionals in their own right. So they have fantastic ideas about blocking. Um, they can have fantastic ideas about the character and how the dialogue might shift. So you, you, you're aware of those things. You still, we still block it out so that we have an understanding of the least of what we need to do to make a movie. So that we have it from, from the first shot to the last shot, we have everything covered. And then as we go, if it changes, it's a, wonderful blessing and a better thing worst case scenario we've got the the hard work we've done in pre to fall back on and generally what happens is it evolves and becomes better we did that on broke we did that on book week and we did that on locusts and it also enables enables us to understand the pacing of the story and the shots that are required to deliver that pacing so it doesn't work like you know, lots of directors work in different ways, but this this process that Heath and I do works really well for us. So at that stage, are you already considering the color grading? I, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say you're considering the color grading, but you're definitely considering the color palette. Okay, they're, they're conversations that we'll have very early, and Heath has a very visual understanding of what he's after in tone, whether it be the tone that the actors are delivering or whether it be the, the tone that the production design 
will deliver. So I think it's just, it's an evolution really from the first time we start talking about it. Yeah, because so much goes into having a beautifully framed shot, you know, and not to take away from the skill um, of a cinematographer, but I think when you have the production, so, you know, the set and the lighting, and then as you mentioned, the color palette that's considered and the framing, I feel that is kind of in the end, it, it, it solidifies what we end up looking at. And most people say, what a beautiful, what, it's beautifully shot, it's beautifully lit. But I think there are so many other elements at play there. Oh, absolutely. I agree with you 100%. I mean, you know, Heath and I always sort of say uh, script, casting, locations. If you can get those three, you know, you're, you're more than halfway there. So it's almost like once you've got those, get out of your, your own way and let the movie making process happen. Um, you bring a production designer and they get to play as well. It makes lighting choices easier. It makes camera choices easier. I mean, I would rather see a great script that is well acted by great talent in a good location with bad lighting, if that makes sense, than great lighting and the other three not measuring up. I understand. So eye candy, you know, versus uh, eye protein, as Del Toro would say. I guess so. Yeah. I mean, look, I mean, it, it, that kind of, for me, goes back to what it is that got me excited about joining the industry in the first place and its performance. Like if I'm operating on something and the performance is next level, it's, it's a phenomenal thing. There's so many elements that go into it. I mean, but yeah, so script, casting, location, very important. Um, to Heath, and they're very important to me. I know normally on a bigger set, there's a storyboard artist, and the directors tend to, but did you ever do any storyboards? All the long form. So the movies that I've done, I've storyboarded all of them. Right. You, using I use a previous software called Frameforge, and so basically what, what happens is once we've found the location, I'll go, and sometimes the production designer will do it or I'll do it, but I'll, I'll just draw it up. I'll measure it. And I'll yes. do a little rough sketch of how it is and then I'll go home and I'll build the location and then I'll throw some actors in there and he and I'll talk and I'll go, oh, okay, boom, boom, boom. And then I'll go, hey, like this and you go, oh, no, a little bit more like this. And so then we create the scene and then we'll be like, oh, pacing of this, you know, it feels like it needs, you know, a slow wide shot that ends up in a mid. Okay, how can we do that? Um, it's like, well, let's just, let's throw, okay, so we're still handheld, let's throw, let's jump in a wheelchair and slowly push the camera in. Yeah, yeah. So it's that kind of thing that starts early because of the previous, it's a storyboard process, but it's pre-visual as well. Yeah. Um, so you're not wasting time getting on set working that out as well. Well, well, that's right. Well, this is the thing, like, and I find, and I mean, it frees it frees you up to be open to trying different things because at worst case scenario you've already got it right so if it's not working how the actors want to try it or how he's want then we've got it here and we can just go well guys look we've worked this out and this works really well but often it gets better when you involve other people so i find it so valuable doing that process but a lot of that's to do with the type of person I am. 
Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't work with all directors and it doesn't resonate with all directors. It works really well with Heath because one thing that it does enable to happen is that on the day of shooting, Heath can just focus solely on the actors and not worry about camera at all because we've already discussed it. Yeah. You know, so the trust is there and the shorthand is there. And if something's occurring that he's not into, he'll call, he'll, you know, we'll have a chat about it and we'll, we'll work out what's missing and we'll find a way to, to bring it up to how it should be. So, yeah, it's, and I think, and, and it kind of harks back to why, what happens quite a lot when actors read Heath's scripts, they actually really want to be involved because he has this knack for writing great characters that, quite often actors don't get the opportunity to play. So when they get offered, uh, uh, you know, a Heath film, and generally speaking, they're, they're not great big budgets. So, but they usually jump at it because they're excited to be involved in that world. And then he gives them the freedom to make it their own. He's not, he's not a dictator at all about the characters. He lets them have a, a healthy involvement in involving the character, which I think is wonderful. So you then have to allow them to be that role. So you have to you have to be confident in the decision for casting them, and then you have to let go a little bit to allow them to be the character. So directing is actually a really tricky job because you you have to be there to enable people to be their best and to help them discover it. But then you have to kind of back away and allow them the freedom to create and discover. So it's, yeah, it's, and I think that's something that Heath does really well. He's, he, he has a lot of faith in um, the people that he casts and then he lets them do their job, which I think, you know, that's a beautiful thing. Did you ever want to get into directing? I don't think so. I mean, I think what happens is, everyone knows who a director is. So I think when you become fascinated with filmmaking, you think that that's the only role. So maybe it's the role that intrigues you, but my, my skill set isn't like when I, when I work with a great director and you see what it is that they bring to the table, uh, they're different skills to what I have. Um, and I'm very sort of I'm very happy in the area that I'm in. Put it that way. I like the collaboration and I love conversation with directors. Yes. But yeah, it's a different, completely different thing. It's a different beast altogether. Yeah, it is totally a different beast. There's a nuance that directors have that you just you know they've got to be great communicators. They've got to be engaging. And they've got to also have, be trusting. Like it's it's a it is a very tricky job. And I think because filmmaking has become more accessible, I think sometimes people forget how hard it is. And it's also the one role that I think is the most easiest to romanticize about. And that that's actually probably a good way of putting it. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it's like when you think filmmaking, you think actor or director. <laughs> yeah. You don't think you know. You don't think dolly grip. No, you don't. You don't at all. You don't think. You don't think boom operator, um, and that's what I spent no. a lot of my time actually doing in film school. <laughs> so where did you study? What did you do? Um, well, I studied uh, two years. They've closed down now in uh, Artarmen. Um, the place was called. The acronym was APA, 
um, and they were the Academy of Photogenic Arts. Um, That's exactly where I went. You were there. I did go there, yeah. How old are you, Chris? Because I'm 42. We obviously, I don't think we were that close. I'm, I'm, old, I'm, older, I'm older than you, but I, you know, I mean, I didn't go back, to, I didn't start film school till I was 32. Right. Then we may have been at the same time because I was 21, I think, 22 when I started. And, you know, Ian was basically, he was running the school because that's his school. I, yeah. And uh, his wife, I think it was Margaret. And his wife, Carol. Sorry, Carol. Carol. Uh, Ian's Carol. going to kill me if he ever hears yeah. this. I hope he doesn't. When were I, you there? What, what um, you, so 2002, 2003. Um, that okay. was the year. Maybe, I was, I, was, I was later. Right. This is a small world. Yep. <laughs> I can't believe you went to the yeah, APA. Yeah. What a spin out. Yeah, well, what happened, what happened was, right, so after the short courses I did in London at Panico, I realised that there was a real benefit to going to a film school that was industry-based. Very hands-on, And yeah. so then, ironically, I mean, this, this, the evolution of my going to film school took a long time because I kept getting, I look, without going into it, I, I kept getting distracted because... I met this Canadian singer-songwriter who then him and I did some travelling together and yes, it was kind of like what started happening was it was kind of like just one more trip and then I'll start <laughs> taking life seriously. Just one more trip. <laughs> and probably what helped in a way was my dad got sick and right. I had to come back to Australia and when I came back, he said to me, can you do me a favour? Can you just go and study? <laughs> and that was the catalyst really that, that because, look, the timing was right because I'd, I'd just done a trip from Vancouver to Alaska. I'd driven up to Alaska um, and that had been something that I'd wanted to do since I was like 17. So Brilliant. Yeah, and it was kind of like I'd left Canada in the middle of winter. I'd come back to Australia and it was like, kind of let's do this you know so yeah then I enrolled in APA because I'd, I'd researched it from overseas and I believed the literature and it, it was like this is an industry-based film school and if I'm going to be honest from a camera perspective it was fantastic because you essentially you learned like you were on set he was a very good teacher his syllabus the way he'd structured his syllabus was very good you you felt like as soon as you finish film school, that you could walk onto a set and understand the protocols. From a camera perspective, you basically all of your second year you just played with sixteen mil film. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. It, it doesn't. It absolutely doesn't. He he was a fantastic teacher. You know, he had the theatrical side to him. He had the knowledge. Um, he had industry based professionals who would come in and help. Um, it it was you know, phenomenal film school. And it's, it's that thing, you know, you're, you know, film schools are only the gateway to something. They're not going to hand you anything. And as much as you're prepared to put into it is, you know, what you will get out of it. And I got so much out of it. Like I got, you know, cemented an understanding that, yep, camera department's where I want to be. Um, DOP is what I'm aspiring to do. Um, and all those things that, you know, you because you're not sure, you know, you're like, I think I can be okay at this. How would you even Absolutely. know, right? So, and and think of that also, like you're in your early 30s and you're taking a gamble. I'd had a, an old 
car that I'd bought when I was 20 that I sold so I could go to film school. It was a 1957 Pontiac. It was a beautiful car. Oh, nice. But it was a huge, it was a huge thing to sell that yeah. car to pay and go to film school, you know. So it was a it lot of It made riding. it real. It was kind of like this is, I'm doing this for real now. Uh, it was, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Ball, yeah. It's on the line. Yeah, yeah. And you got to balls and all. It, yeah. You know, balls and all. Yeah. I mean, and I committed to it, head down, bum up, and yeah. gave it everything I had. And I'm still, I'm still doing that to this day. So look, I take my hat off to you, Chris, because, you know, to have gone back and at a later stage in your life, um, and I sometimes feel that works out maybe not for everyone but there's an advantage to that of course there are disadvantages but your head really is at a different maturity and i think you're more driven you have a, a better understanding of you also had a chance to live and that's the most important thing because now i'm going to actually go and go hard at this you know it says a lot about i think what you've achieved now the timing was definitely right. I mean, the probably the thing I didn't realise was how poor I would be for, for how long. Um, because what happens, obviously, as a young adult, uh, you know, single young adult, um, you can be quite cash rich, right? And then suddenly mm. you commit to, you go back to film school or go back to school. And, yeah, suddenly it it changes. And I think... That was a huge shock, but I, but I think if you thought about it too much, you probably wouldn't do it. So sometimes it's nice that it's a shock later on than, the, than an understanding of what's coming. So it, it all worked out really well, like, you know, still fighting, still here fighting. That's brilliant. I, I still can't get over the fact that you went to the APA. I, APA loves. <laughs> I know, it's crazy, right? Ironically, it took me 20 years to come back to sound. Wow. But enough of that. Let's go back to the discussion we were having about photography, the lighting that drives the situation. That really is the approach that you've had to take or wanted to take with, uh, you know, book week and broke. Oh, it's a good question. Um, it's a really good question. If I'm going to be honest, I would have taken it anyway because it's what floats my boat. I like my cinematic world to feel real. I like my cinematic world to feel, let me try and phrase it in a different way. I don't like the focus to be on, oh my God, that was such a beautifully lit scene. I want the story and the acting to be in the forefront of everyone's mind and the camera work to be proficient enough that it's not noticed and the lighting to do the same thing. And that is a choice. And that doesn't always, you don't always get the, the opportunity to do that. It's just, I did strike a lucky, you know, encounter with Heath and the fact he, the style of lighting that he really enjoys is very similar. And then obviously when you, you're doing independent, small budget stuff, it's a good thing because you are relying on your locations to, to motivate and stimulate. And it could be very difficult to try and, you know, go for a, a larger look in the time frame. So, I mean, it, it all kind of worked out really well. But, I mean, it, early days of the references that he would sort of give me, you know, I remember um, Friday Night Lights being a, a big reference for 
broke. Not the movie, not the actual movie, but the television series. And then I remember watching the television series and going, wow, you know, like this is, they're really throwing it to the wall here. Like, you know, they would cross the line on that show. <laughs> and you know what? It didn't matter. The way they did it, it just didn't matter. It was obviously a lot more uh, aggressive than the approach that we took to Broke, but it definitely was a a starting point. You know, we both like straight away, you know, we knew where the film needed to sit. And, you know, to this day, would I shoot it differently? I definitely would. There's things I would do slightly differently only because I've I've evolved since, but it would still have the same grittiness to it. Beautiful. Are there, because I'd love to know, you know, there must be some influences that you have and maybe that you haven't had a chance to um, kind of filter down and then use into your style, or maybe you have, but are there cinematographers, whether they're retired or contemporary, that you consider masters of their craft? Oh, wow. Um, big fan of Conrad Hall. He's sort of somebody that I guess I noticed early on. And then like from, from someone like, I mean, there's so many, but I, I think probably... The standout for me is probably Roger Deakins because I feel like he is constantly putting the story first. I feel like it's it's all about the story for him and he designs his process accordingly. And I and I feel like that's probably uh, how I feel about it. Um, sometimes it's necessary for the movie to feel not as beautiful as it possibly could. You know, everybody's different, but that's sort of, I, I like, I, I really like the situational motivated lighting that yeah, you, you see on his projects. And I'm curious, because I'm going to ask this for um, any uh, cinematographer, Facebook connections who are listening to this. If I were to ask you right now, what's in your kit? What's in your kit bag right now? Can you tell me? So when you say kit bag, you're talking about not camera, not lenses just ancillary stuff yeah okay i have a, a light meter in my bag which i i would in these modern times it seems irrelevant but i kind of feel naked without it so i always have a light meter with me I, and i also i have a um a contrast viewing glass that i use that um at the beginning of a of a show it just helps me get my eye in and basically it's a it's a piece of glass that was designed to represent 320 ASA, the contrast of the film stock. So right. when you look through it, you can see your black point and your highlights. I use it a lot outside just to help me with charting shadows and um, how the sun's moving. But I also sort of use it in the beginning. After a few days, I don't need it anymore because your eye kind of adjusts and can kind of go without it. But I find it really useful in the beginning. And in times gone by, I have a black folder that has uh, all my notes and uh, especially for long form, it has all my little iterations of what I was thinking at the time when I was reading the script. I haven't moved to an iPad yet, but I'm definitely right. thinking about it because I can see the benefit of uh, having everything uh, in one flat surface. Um, I also have a tendency to put my black folder down and not remember where I put it and constantly having somebody find it for me which is fantastic i'd say that's it really um a drink bottle a drink bottle is very important 
to stay hydrated. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you know what though? Something that I do use all the time is my phone. I have there's a bunch of different apps on my phone that I use. Right. Uh, sun tracking apps. So I, I, you know, I know where the sun's going to be at different times. I used to use a viewfinder. Now I use uh, one of the apps on my phone. After a day or so, you stop using the apps because you you kind of get to know what lenses you're going to be on just based on getting used to what you're seeing every day. So the phone has become a very, very important part. So out of all of those uh, components, ancillary items, which would be the one that you couldn't go without? Oh, I think, I mean, I think... With a modern camera um, and understanding modern cameras the, the the way that they are now, I mean, I could definitely go without all of those things, but I would definitely feel, it would feel strange to go into a job without my light meter because I rely on it a lot to make things happen quickly, mm-hmm. uh, using the spot meter to set my highlight to set my low light i mean it's maybe it's become a bit of a security blanket but i wouldn't like to go into a job without it but if i had to i would lastly chris i wanted to know what advice could you offer offer sorry to aspiring cinematographers so looking to take their first bite of an indie film and what advice would you like to have received when you were first starting out probably the best bit of advice that i i I ever got was from an actor and and they basically just said to me, perseverance and resilience, uh, two things that you, re- you really need to sort of have in your toolbox in this industry. From a filmmaking perspective, I think know yourself, be true to yourself and listen, listen to what people are saying. It's that sort of big business anecdote. You know, there's no such thing as a dumb question. I mean... Great ideas come from all different places. And I guess knowing what a good idea is half the battle. So being open, I guess, being open and attentive to everybody on set. It goes back to what you said and you're saying now, open, which will allow for that collaboration. And it it really does. Like Mm. I can't say it enough. Like everybody who's there has a passion for filmmaking and everybody there who's there has their strengths and, if you're open and understanding of what it is you're trying to do, then I think you can recognize a good idea and, you know, good ideas. At the end of the day, when people are watching what it is that you've created, it doesn't matter whose idea it was, as long as it helped move the story into people's hearts, you know. Thank you so much for your time today, Chris. I've, I've really enjoyed it. I've learned a lot. I hope anyone listening um, has felt the same way. Um, and I hope that, if Pleasure, I can mate. go back and say, look, there are no dumb questions. I hope that in this case, you didn't feel there were any dumb questions. <laughs> no, I, look, I honestly don't. Like, I mean, I, I, I'm a passionate filmmaker, but I don't normally get up on a box and talk about it. So these situations I enjoy because I get prompted to talk about things that I love, you know. Absolutely. And you can hear the passion. So thank you very much again for your time. Um, no, take it's a pleasure. Care. Thank you, mate. And Thanks for everything that you've been doing behind the scenes. Um, you know, it's a big undertaking and I know everybody involved really appreciates it. So thank you. Thank you so much, Chris. Look, have a great night, mate. And to everyone else that's listening, until next time, ciao.
Thanks for listening to Diary of a Crowdfunded Film. Subscribe to hear all future episodes. And if you enjoyed the show, leave us a review. For more info, please visit Diary of a Crowdfunded Film on Facebook.